0: That is hit well. A Clemente home run, and the Pirates lead one to nothing.
1: Welcome to the Imago Day Podcast, the show of philosophical and theological reflections for today's world. I'm Luis Hernandez, and I am joined by Professor Joseph Terry. Joe, how are you today? I'm doing well, mi gente. What's up? You know, we're talking on the last day of uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. I know. It's like, like a weird halfway, like, mm-hmm. like what it starts September 15th and it ends October 15th. So right. it's very fitting because today we are talking about a baseball power couple mm-hmm. Roberto and Vera Clemente and their life and legacy. And I think this is a continuation of our conversation on suffering, which is our last podcast episode. You definitely want to check that out. Um, yes. We unpack just the ex- human experience of suffering and we examine it through a couple of different lenses. And, and Joe, I really appreciated that conversation. And um, and Joe, we're both Puerto Rican, you know, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. sure we both heard the name Roberto Clemente. Absolutely. Um, but you've shared that you know, it's okay. You're not you're not a big baseball fan, so you don't know a, <laughs> yeah. a, a lot about the man's life. <laughs> it's true. Um, but ha- have you heard of Roberto Clemente before? I, I have, of course, I have. And and it's you know, I
2: feel a little little shame that I don't know much about the man. But <laughs> but he's a household
1: name in in you know in, in a certain respect. So I definitely have come across him before. Which like says a lot, you know. Like yeah. you didn't follow this this person's right. baseball career, you know. Like that's totally fine. And yet you still have heard of his name do you mind sharing like how like was it just like a household name you hear here and there or through friends like how do you know of Roberto Clemente
2: yeah it was through friends it was through the tv you know things like Mm. that I mean you know I'm not big in sports uh and Mm. so you know there's a lot of things that that I I am just not I just don't know um and i say that you know in, in kind of a little a little shame but um you know with regards <laughs> okay, to him it's all right yeah. <laughs> it is what it is it is, um, what it is. no but but definitely i've come across him in media and um even of course seen seen pictures of him seen him in action but don't know much about him so i'm really looking forward to to learning a little bit about him from you Lewis, today
1: yeah i i've always heard of the name um like, I grew up in a very, very big baseball family. Like, everyone, I'm talking, like, even my mom, like, has played baseball or softball. My sisters, wow. my father, like, we're really, really into sports. And yeah. Clemente's career spans the 60s and the 70s, so I never really saw clips of him or, or watch yeah. him play, but I would just hear stories about Roberto Clemente. So in this episode, um, what I would like to do is kind of look at a couple of um, highlights and snapshots of not only his life, but his his wife, Vera Clemente, uh, her life as well, and some of the suffering that they experienced. Mm-hmm. And what I hope that we can unpack in this conversation and, and what I hope the listener can take away from this conversation is to look at some of the ways in which these two human beings persevered mm-hmm. um, through some to me, looks like some very difficult suffering that they experienced in their lives and were able to just kind of step up in the midst of some very, very difficult challenges. Right. So um, this is not going to be so much of like a full-on biography. There's plenty of awesome material. And I I will put a couple of links in the show notes for anybody who's just interested in in reading and learning more uh, about both Roberto and Vera. But I want to begin our conversation with uh, a famous Roberto Clemente quote, and I want to get your take on it. Yeah. it's It goes like this. If you have a chance to accomplish something that will make things better for people coming behind you and you don't do that, you are wasting your time on this earth. Wow. End quote. So, Joe, let's start our conversation <laughs> yeah. by uh, getting your take on that quote. Do you agree with that? Like, what's your take on that?
2: I like it. I like it. I don't know if I agree, perhaps, with
1: every um,
2: sentiment that is implicit in that quote, mm, um, mm. but but I, I really like it because, of course, it's rooted in an altruistic perspective that we ought to, you know, reckon with the reality with the fact that we are together. We are already caught up in the matrix of community, and mm. because of that, um, we. In one sense, should be mindful of the other, and to do so, uh, and to be mindful I- in such a way that that helps the other, that journeys with the other, that supports somehow the other, and I and I'm all for that. You know, with regards to uh, therefore, one's life is. Uh what does he say at the end of that quote empty or or meaningless or or just
1: uh wasting wasting yeah, says, yeah. okay, if you don't do that you're wasting your time on this earth. <laughs> it's, it's like it sounds pretty harsh but it's like yeah. I don't know, it's like one of those bitter truths mm-hmm. like pills to swallow. Yeah,
2: yeah I mean you know it, it reminds me of course is some he's saying something different uh Socrates right the the famous quote um the unexamined life is a life that is not worth living for the human mm-hmm. being, right? So mm-hmm. like um, so there's something similar there. I, you know, I, of course, I think what Roberto is doing there is just really stressing the importance of of a moral and ethical perspective. But I, you know, so he could be, you know, perhaps speaking hyperbolic here. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I, I, I like what he's saying. I mean, if we, if we press it all the way down and get to the ontological, maybe we may have some questions. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I think what he's saying is true, and and I resonate with with that. I do.
1: What were some of the like? You mentioned like there was like some apprehension that you had when you first heard the quote. Do yeah. you mind like articulating that? What What were you feeling?
2: Yeah. Um. You know, if if a person is not helping another person, it may be due to their own ignorance or their own, uh, you know, uh, malformation, uh, mm. a poor education something some something you know their own trauma mm-hmm. and i don't want to mm-hmm. then say that that person's wasting their life mm-hmm. right there's mm-hmm. something intrinsically uh good and and there's there's a there's a profound dignity and worth to every human being even to those humans who who are standing in contradistinction to this idea that we should help others, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I so that that's that was my only apprehension. Like I wouldn't want to to hold on to that as a kind of ontological claim concerning the nature of the human person, right? Um mm-hmm. but on the surface level, right, and and again giving space for a potential uh hyperbolic speech here that he's maybe, you know, just using a kind of rhetorical flourishing to Mm-hmm. To express the importance of this, I would be uh, in 100% agreement with it. So th- that's that was a bit of my uh, my holding back. Yeah. There. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I I agree with you, and and I do yeah. think that um, when he said this, he had a great understanding of his platform as yeah. this baseball player, as a great baseball player, right? And he was using some hyperbolic language. Yeah, I don't I know the so. full context of that quote, but mm. it, I do I do think that he. He was using hyperbolic language to to make a stronger statement, mm-hmm. uh, in hopes that it would have a, a positive impact. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I, and I like that. I really do. Yeah, I think that's important.
1: All right, so let me give a little bit of biography about um, Roberto mm. Roberto Enrique Clemente Walker, born August eighteenth, nineteen thirty four, was a Puerto Rican professional baseball right fielder. He played eighteen seasons oh. in Major League Baseball, and if anyone follows baseball. This man's numbers are ridiculous. <laughs> he played in 15 all-star games. He was a uh, National League MVP, National League batting leader. He had 3,000 hits in his major league career, which is, that's a very small club uh, for baseball players. Wow. And he won a uh, World Series uh, with the Pirates twice. He is the first Caribbean and the first Latin American player to be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Wow. Um, As a matter of fact, because of his early death, and we'll get to what happened, um, Major League Baseball changed the rules of how you can get into the Hall of Fame. Mm. And so before you had to be retired for five years before you were even considered and you have to get voted in and and this long process. But after Clemente's death, they added another clause that if um, a player has been deceased for at least six months, then they're eligible for entry. So he passed away December 31st, 1972, and Mm. then he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1973. Mm. Um, So he began his professional baseball career when he was just 18 years old, um, playing for a Puerto Rican professional baseball league, and while he was there... Uh, someone from the Brooklyn Dodgers, mm. Brooklyn, you know your, yeah, uh, your hometown. Right. Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> they went up to him and they offered him a contract to play for one of their minor league teams. Mm. Now in baseball, there's like different levels of the minor leagues, and Triple A is like one of the highest. So the Dodgers offered him a contract to play for their Triple A team, which their team was in Canada in Montreal, wow. which is already like talk about a change for this man who grew up in Puerto Rico and right. now he's got to go to Canada. And um, Roberto is is Puerto Rican, but also of African descent. Yeah. So he's, he's black and brown. Like Spanish is his first language, but he's also very, very dark skinned. So he's already, he's at a double disadvantage. Yeah, um, afro When it comes to, yeah. So while he was playing there, this is one of um, the first suffering that Roberto experienced was that he was too good. Mm. Like he was, he was such a good baseball player in the minor leagues that his team didn't play him. They would sit him on the bench. And it sounds crazy, but hear me out. Mm. Because of the way baseball as an organization operates and the way it operated at this time, Clemente was vulnerable for other baseball organizations to basically draft him. Um, so like the Dodgers didn't have full ownership of Clemente. So in order to like heighten their chances of keeping him in their organization, they wanted to make him look bad. So, like, there's stories of, like, scouts coming to visit, right? They're coming to visit and see other players that they know are good. And then they're like, yo, who's this Puerto Rican guy? And he's doing hitting practice with, like, the pitchers, right? Pitchers are, like, usually the weakest hitters in the game. And yet they were, like, they they only allowed him to do batting practice with the pitchers. They rarely brought him in. His, like, first at-bat, he hits a home run. So then they sit him out for, like, a month. And wow. so this is his first suffering and this is where I want to pause Joe because wow. um I to me I I feel like the suffering here is like a diminishing of one's value mm-hmm. by like an external force and I feel this on a personal level when it comes to the work that I do as like a, a freelance artist as a freelance video guy Really? Because because usually as like the client no matter what, you know, like, and it's, it's almost like a unanimous thing where they will kind of diminish or minimize the quality of work in an effort to either get more work or Mm. to like not pay as much, you know? And, and I feel like Clemente here, this is like baseball is, is really performance driven, you know, and it's, it's not even so much the performance on the field, but these players have to train year round. They have to always keep playing. They always have to keep their bodies in shape. They always have to continue to get better. There's never a point in baseball. It doesn't matter who you are, even if you're Babe Ruth, right? Like legendary baseball players, you still have to keep your body Mm -hmm. at its optimal uh, performance level. And then mentally you have to, find ways to get better at the game. There's always an area an aspect of the game and is why I love baseball. Like there's always areas that you need to improve. Right. So I, I want to ask you this question, Joe of like this idea of like an external force, whether it's an organization, right? Like the Dodgers or it's a person, a family member, like just, a feeling of your value being diminished by an outside force. And, and and that creates a type of suffering you're sitting on the bench and you know, you're capable of, of performing really well. How does one even begin to unpack that, uh, sit with that process that and ultimately move beyond that? Um, what do you, what do you say to that? It,
2: that, you know, um, that's real suffering um in mm. in a particular instantiation of its form you know it, in one sense it's an invitation and and i suppose we'll we'll get to his own faith and how that has shaped and informed uh, his life mm. but it's an invitation to hu- a kind of humility an imitation of christ right um so 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 going the theological route here we have the one who is the ground of all existence itself, the architect and the engineer of all of reality, sustaining all things and mm-hmm. being becoming mm-hmm. becoming a fetus in the womb of the ever virgin Mary and and is mm-hmm. born and and lives in in relative obscurity for uh, about thirty years and and is seeing things and 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 as it were suffering a silence while being god right and, and, and in mm-hmm. one sense, we can't even imagine that. Um, and yet it is revealed to us as Christians. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, just considering initially the theological import of such a thing. Of course, this is ballooned out in the very life and ministry of Jesus
0: mm-hmm. and
2: and how he, of course, eventually faces his own passion and death on a Roman cross. But what we see mm-hmm. there in the letter of St. Paul, so beautifully written, that him uh, in Philippians uh, that through his humility, right through his emptying of himself, uh, God elevates him. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's it's a wild thing, but that doesn't diminish or minimize the suffering. It's a real suffering, and um, you know, for what we're seeing here, that just it just it's just so tough because look, mm-hmm. you know. We're, Roberto, you know, this, this guy is a genius on the field. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Given the stats that you've just communicated, he is capable of so much, and yet he's being overlooked. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the, the question then is, how does one proceed? How, how does one handle this and i i I suspect of course that his faith is going to be uh generative and informative with regards to to having the proper disposition to handle this and Mm -hmm. there's a tension there right because you don't want to just allow the abuse as it were if we can Mm -hmm. use that language to continue to go indefinitely but at the same time uh there is a a proper reckoning of the providence of the father the providence mm-hmm. of God in these things, and allowing these pains and sufferings to, in fact, help us to grow in that—you know—to yeah. to cultivate certain virtues and whatnot. But but those are just so, some of my knee-jerk reactions there to 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 that level of suffering.
1: Yeah, very very well said, and mm-hmm. it is worth mentioning that uh, Clemente um, was a devout uh, Catholic, and you can you can just feel it in a lot of what he does and a lot of his words and stuff and later on in his baseball career um, there was a moment where he felt like he deserved an MVP title like his stats were just insane and the award went to someone else that their stats weren't as good and and he felt passed over yet again and he said um, he said uh, this quote which I also find interesting. He says, uh, if I would be happy, I would be a very bad ball player with me. When I get mad, it puts energy in my body. Mm. Uh, he talks a lot about like when he feels like slighted or, or um, yeah. yeah, just passed over that it it creates like this, this anger. Mm. And I honestly, I, it's funny. I talk to my wife about this all the time of like, I feel like it's like a naturally Puerto Rican thing <laughs> where you get like, it's, it's like more than a pettiness, but you just feel like an injustice. And it just gives you this boost of energy mm. to just like, like, ah, like I'm just gonna, you know, I'm going to do better. Yes. And it did um, drive him to do better. And going back to this moment where he's sitting on the bench in the minor leagues, you know, like when you're in a contract like that and, and you're dealing with a, a large baseball organization, you're right, Joe, like there's there's a lot of limitations to what you can do. Yeah, And the way that story ends with um, Clemente is basically I, I feel like it was a type of providence because mm. a scout from the Pittsburgh Pirates visits and he understands what's happening because there was a moment where he he talks to one of the you know, one of the coaches of the team and he explicitly asks him about Clemente. And the coach says, oh, you mean him? Like, you know, like they were just kind of overplaying how much they were downplaying this guy. Yeah. And this scout goes on to say, like, I knew right then and there that the Pittsburgh Pirates, like, we are going to get this guy. And so sure enough, like the Pirates, they were a really bad team at the time. Mm. And so they had an earlier draft pick. And right away they snatch up Roberto Clemente. And if you talk to any Pittsburgh fan out there, like they're going to tell you that Clemente was meant to be on that team. Like Mm. what he did to that team, to that organization, to that city. Like it just, it was meant to be, you know? And so I think going back to what you said, Clemente, he worked within his, his limits, right? Like he, this is what I can do. And he just, he persevered. He was definitely angry, yes. but instead of just tapping out, he, he worked harder And I feel like God kind of stepped in and, like, (laughs) helped the scout see, like, (laughs) listen, he's going to play for this team, you know?
2: You know, and Um, and, and Lewis, you know, it's another example of, I think, what we've shared in in the the previous episode about using suffering. But here, using mm -hmm. suffering towards a a constructive end, you know? He Mm -hmm. didn't just allow it to sit in the pit of his stomach, and it mm-hmm. becoming uh, kind of festering and self-destructive, but rather channeled it towards positive ends. He said, "Oh, I'll just I'll just use this uh, to hone my craft and to hone my skill, and continued uh, within the um, exigencies and the limits of of his mm-hmm. particular contract and his situation." cold climate my man is from pr like what's this yeah (laughs) you know the whole the whole nine and look at that
1: as you as you uh identify providence you know so he he goes on to be a part of the pittsburgh pirates and that was the only team Mm. that he played for um his entire career the pirates would go on to retire his number immediately as soon as possible wow um but uh As we shift to his major league baseball career, one of his biggest challenges, especially at the very beginning, was the level of racism Mm -hmm. that he experienced as an Mm Afro-Boricua. He, at the time, like the best way to kind of communicate baseball, especially since like television, broadcasting, and and was nowhere near where it's at today. And and Mm -hmm. radio is still kind of... You know, it's it has its limits. So the newspaper was the go-to source for baseball news and stuff. And the newspapers were just really cruel to Roberto. They would, you know, English is his second language. So he has a very, very thick Spanish accent. And what they would do is like they would kind of treat him almost like like an inhuman, like, Animal you mm. know like they would write out what he's saying in English phonetically mm. um, you know it's so like they would say like I would heat the ball like they yeah. would spell yeah. it out in a way to highlight his kind of broken English yeah. and yeah. make fun of him and and also like even the way they used his likeness his early baseball cards would say Bob Clemente instead of Roberto. And he would constantly correct them. It's like my name is Roberto. It's not Bob. You know, it's not like this this white American version of the name. It's Roberto. Yeah. And so for this uh, suffering that I want us to talk about, um, I want to uh, play a clip of an experience that Clemente has. Um, He he. This is in one of his last interviews, but Mm -hmm. he talks about an experience of buying furniture in New York. Um, and the racism he experienced. So I, I want us to listen to it, and then let's have a discussion about uh, a new kind of suffering that Clemente was facing when it came to just being this baseball player, but also the fact that he's a baseball player in America. And so he's experiencing this deep level racism that he'd never experienced before.
0: I always respect everybody and thanks to God when I grew up, uh, I was raised, uh, I, was, I was raised and when I, my mother and father they never told me to hate anyone, or they never told me to dislike anybody because their race or color. We never talk about that. I, the matter of fact, I, I started listening to this stuff when I came to this state. So to me, I would say that uh, this is something that uh, I love everybody, and uh, and I have to be very careful what I do because wh- who I am. So. I'll give you an example, I was in New York one time buying some furniture and uh, the people out there, my wife was, uh, was going to have a baby, and when we used to go around and the people, they, uh, they meet us at the door and they said, what do you want, he said, we would like to see the showroom and see some furniture. And they said, well, let's wait for a little bit and uh, we're going to send somebody to the last floor to see what we have. So they said that uh, they have one floor of furniture. And uh, so they took us to a real, real uh, place where they, they, they show the, the furniture that was in the showroom wasn't the furniture that they were showing up upstairs. And I said, we would like to see the furniture downstairs that was in the showroom. And they said, well, you don't have enough money to buy that. <laughs> and I said, how do you know that I don't have enough money? He said, well, but that's very expensive. I said, I would like to see it because I have the right to see it as a human being, as a public that buy from you. So finally, they show it to us. And I remember, I just uh, uh, had some money. Uh, uh, we was going to Europe, and I had some money on my on my, on my wallet. I have $5,000 in my wallet. We said to the, the whole amount of money, I said, do you think this one can buy it? <laughs> so they want to know who I was and uh, all this stuff. And uh, I, uh, when they found who I was, so they said, we have seven stores. Seven, sto- seven, sto- seven floors full of furniture, and we're going to show it to you, and don't worry about it. And you know, you, all, you we thought that you was like another Puerto Rican. And right away, I just got mad. I said, look, your business is to sell to anybody. I don't care if I'm Puerto Rican, or I'm Jewish, or I'm whatever you want to call me. But you see, this is what is really get me mad, because I'm Puerto Rican, you treat me different from the other people, I have the same American money that you are asking for, but I have a different treatment. With right now, you're giving my wife a, a different treatment and myself and my friend that they're Puerto Rican, so I don't want to do anything about it. I don't want to buy your, your furniture, so I walk out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you. We thought you were just another Puerto Rican. Wow. Isn't that like... like yeah, so... My question is... uh <laughs> How can one not punch someone else in the face (laughs) like you know like how do you keep your cool like that in the face of because this is a different kind of suffering you know this is not an individual performance level this is something that goes much deeper yeah it's it's like systemic it's Mm -hmm. it's got a long history in humanity it's 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 racism you know like this is a I, i would say arguably a a more intense suffering because it's experienced on, on a deep collective level. Um, what are, what's your take hearing this story? And, and what do you have to say about this level of suffering?
2: Listen, man, the temptation to slap the taste out of that guy's mouth is real <laughs> um, <laughs> because racism yeah. is real. You know, systemic yeah. racism is real and xenophobia mm-hmm. is real. And mm-hmm. at the heart of all of these things is a profound denial of the dignity and the worth of the person that is before you. Mm. Um, and I'm just I just love uh how he held them accountable. I think that was classy and mm. how he would just he just left. You know, he bounced, yeah. he said, you know, I'm gonna take my business somewhere else. And showed mm-hmm. them, listen, I could have purchased this and whatever else you had here. Uh, but this is your loss. Uh, you know, very classy move. Um But I loved how he he <laughs> spoke about his family and how he was raised to mm-hmm. love to mm-hmm. love and surely you know his restraint uh uh in one sense um is is a restraint of love uh mm-hmm. albeit he was angry of course um to mm-hmm. to love is is to not uh make believe that one is not angry you know uh, in fact mm-hmm. it, you know love is going to uh create space for for further um how can we say agitation, uh, mm-hmm. especially if the love is rooted in, in the dignity and the worth of all. But mm-hmm. yeah, th- you know, this sucks, man. It, it, yeah. it, and, it, and it's a typical narrative, a typical story of so many black and brown and yellow and other folks
0: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. up and
2: down the decades uh, and mm-hmm. even the centuries. How does one uh, handle this? He, I thought he did a, a classy, classy job in doing so. Uh, Mm -hmm. in in the way he recounted it
1: yeah like he he articulated a truth Mm -hmm. he articulated it in a way that was devoid of like a i would say like a reactionary hate or a like he said he he got mad but i think that's different than like rage you know like he didn't break the furniture and stuff like that you know like he didn't like you said, he was composed. He was composed. Um, He was composed. And I do think that there's something to kind of take from that because I, I don't think I would have had this, that same level of composure to be honest. Like, especially um, at this point he mentions his wife. uh, Her name is uh, Vera Clemente. Yeah. Just a quick aside of, about her. Like she was a very kind of, you know, low key woman, you know, like Mm. here's her husband, big baseball star um, and she's uh, supporting rock for him, but she wasn't seeking the limelight or whatever. She's right. she's at this point is thinking about her family and wants nice furniture, you know, like mm-hmm. let's go to New York and get some nice furniture. And yet they experience this in New York, which is like, I say that because I always have this impression that, you know, the Northern parts of the States are more progressive when it mm-hmm. comes to race and, and racism mm-hmm. and, and you know that's something that you would experience only in the south but no like this is this is in the northeast that he's also mm-hmm. experiencing this mm-hmm. um yep Absolutely. and you know you said something very interesting like when he mentions his family and stuff yeah. um he was the youngest of seven wow and his dad was a, a foreman for sugarcane crops yes. in, yeah. in puerto rico in, yeah. in carolina where he grew up and when it comes to sugarcane in Puerto Rico, that's a whole nother yes. conversation. Maybe yes. we'll talk about that, right. but because his family's, uh, resources were limited, Clemente and his brothers would work in the field with his dad. And their main job was like loading and unloading trucks and stuff. And I, I want to ask you this question of like about class, mm. about like the working class and, and love because I wonder if there's a correlation there. Um, of just, like, having these experiences as a boy and, like, he definitely would have been exposed to other lower-income mm-hmm. uh, men and women and, and possibly children who were also working. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder, like, to what extent does that connection, does that, like, work influence one's perception of love and people and connection do you have anything um any response to that
2: i i think i think there's a a real connection there um our own experiences particularly our experiences of labor allow us Mm. to how can i put this Depending on the kind of labor we are engaged in, let's say the the more grunt work or you know the the, the grit of of manual labor in one sense or another, of course mm-hmm. situates us within a certain community of of like individuals uh, within a particular let's say economic class so there's a solidarity mm-hmm. there there's a, there's a, there's mm-hmm. a connection there. And, you know, sometimes that affords a person who may be reflexive, reflective, and, and they're thinking about things to, to have a bit more compassion and say, mm-hmm. you know, um, we need to be mindful of where people are. We need mm-hmm. to be considerate of others um, because we know how it is out here, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in these streets, yeah. in these fields and whatever the case is. Um, that's not always the case, of course, um, mm-hmm. but but that definitely is something real. You know, this also brings to mind a, a wonderful quote by the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. You know, he says, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. I want to say that again. Mm-hmm. I think it's instructive, right? He who has a why to live for, that is to say a purpose, right, can bear almost any how. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and I think it really comes down to that, you know, what, what is strengthening the will, the, the, the person as well to endure these things. And then, and then you're right, right. What, what, what compels them to move forward? Clearly survival. Mm-hmm. I got to provide for my family, et cetera, et cetera. But. Certain modes of suffering, right, test certain kinds of metal, to use that metaphorically. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have a higher and deeper purpose at work, um, and a sort of system of values that anchor us in the here and now, um, we're gonna have a really difficult time processing the suffering, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 it could mm-hmm. just simply transmute into a kind of, again, festering uh, and a sort of inner poisoning that seeps mm-hmm. in everything mm-hmm. that we do. And, and we begin to leak that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, his experience, his father's experience in the fields and in Puerto Rico, and mm-hmm. and then I'm sure that that has had a decisive influence in the way his father raised him. Mm-hmm. Um, and And in turn, how he navigated the social... And and class spheres that he was engaging in, both in Canada as well as in North America, United States of mm-hmm. America, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and um, two things come to mind. One, the the fact that um he grew up in in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. like Puerto Rico's history is there's like a unique melting pot to Puerto Rico where there are many different culture groups that have. Through history, kind of intermingled and stuff, and I think it's created its own kind of um, legacy and narrative when it comes to race and culture yeah. and it's not to say that there is no discrimination, in Puerto Rico, because right. historically there definitely has been, but I think that has helped that helped shape Clemente's view of looking past the color of a person's skin yeah and also um I think. Pittsburgh right as a as a city especially at the time very like industrial town a lot of blue collar working class people I think Clemente had a unique connection with the fans of Pittsburgh and then the rest of the country in the world mm-hmm. because he like <laughs> there's a story of like after the world series and stuff like he just like went out to the fans like he just went out to the crowd and was just like right. yo what's good you know like Just people to people, um, Mm -hmm. you know, despite this platform of being a baseball player, of being considered one of the greatest baseball players, he was playing around the same time as like Willie Mays and Hank Aaron, you know, like just giants, monoliths in baseball. And he was seen as better than them by many Mm -hmm. newspapers at the time. And yet here he is like just chilling with the fans, talking to the fans um, and yeah, like it's, and, and
2: that's a measure of his greatness. That's a measure of his greatness. That mm-hmm. he is of this skill set. He, he is of this capacity. He has accomplished X, Y, and Z. His stats are off the charts, and yet is approachable. Yet he comes to the people. Yet he's like, yeah, let, what's up? You know, let's chill. Let's yeah. you know, I wanna yeah. I, I wanna embrace you. You know that that's awesome. That's awesome.
1: You know, I I yeah. I, I love that. So now let's kind of fast forward to, um, towards the end of Clemente's life mm. now. Um, so fast forward to like 1971 and basically Clemente's routine would be, he'd play baseball during the baseball season and between like any type of downtime, he was known for doing any type of charity work and especially in like other Latin American countries. It wasn't just like tied to a particular place. Right. And during the off season, he would also, he would just go back to Puerto Rico and play baseball there and, and manage one of the teams there. Mm-hmm. So he was just like constantly just working like outside of his baseball career. It just seemed like he never really rested. Yeah. <laughs> like he just kept going. Mm-hmm. And then um, in 1970, yeah, 1972, there was an earthquake in Nicaragua um, where he was, already doing some, um, charity work and, and aid. And he made the decision to deliver aid to the earthquake victims there. And even like this decision, um, I, I learned like why he made this decision. It was because his organization was sending aid there, um, before, and the aid was not getting to the people. Because of the politics and whatever situation was going on in Nicaragua at the time, like it was basically just getting taken by like a paramilitary group basically. Right. And so Clemente said, hey, if I go in person, like they're not going to, they're not going to do that. You know, like he's got too much of a name. Like it would be scandalous. Like he would make sure if he's there in person that the aid gets delivered to the victims of this earthquake and sadly, the plane that he was in, it crashed shortly after takeoff and, and he died at the young age of 38 mm. on December 31st, 1972. And it just like the immediate shock to his immediate family, to his friends, um, one of his fellow baseball players, like, and this, this story like breaks my heart. Cause like, mm. I, 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 I don't know, something about it resonates, like, immediately, like, everyone was at Clemente's funeral except for this one uh, player, and he, um, his name is Manny San, San Guillen. Mm. Um he was Panamanian, and he didn't attend Roberto's memorial service because he chose to dive into the waters where Clemente's plane had crashed, into shark-infested waters to try to recover the body, like, that's wow. how traumatic of an experience it this moment had on, on many, many people. Wow. Um, and so it was a really sad moment. And this is a, a unique type of suffering that um, I want to turn now to Vera Clemente. And this is a unique type of suffering that she's now experiencing because here's this woman who her husband is a living legend at this point. Right. And she's raising her family life is going uh, well. And, and now her husband's gone and now she's got to raise three children. Mm -hmm. And now she's also got to like make a decision as to what to do. You know, um, I want to pause here because like a part of me would understand if she decided to like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do me, you know, like I'm just going to leave. I'll, I'll raise the kids or whatever. And I'm just going to be on my own kind of thing. You know, like to me, that, that seems like a very viable option in the face of such a traumatic experience. Yes. Um, And yet she decides to not do that. What she ends up doing is continuing Clemente's legacy in a way that Almost like she creates her own legacy. Yes. So basically uh, Clemente had this this concept of starting this place called uh, like Sports City mm. in Catalina where they both uh, grew up. And she made it happen. Like she carried it out. She, she got the grants, the loans. She hosted an annual telethon. Oh, wow. And she made the sports um, education facility that's actually responsible for some other like great... Puerto Rican baseball players. Wow. Like they came out of this facility and she also started um, the Roberto Clemente Foundation, which um, to this day they hand out the Roberto Clemente award in baseball, which is a very like big deal. (laughs) Like it's Mm. a very prestigious award that goes to someone who, MLB puts it like this, they best exemplify the game of baseball, sportsmanship, community involvement, and the individual's contribution to the team. Wow. So it goes not only to just like a really good baseball player, but a really good baseball player who's also doing like really awesome stuff for charities Mm -hmm. off field. Mm -hmm. Um, And she kept that going. Like she was known for, um, there's a story in 2017, uh, she presented the award. And then right after she went to, I think it was like at Houston, Um, and this was around the time that like Houston was hit really badly with those um, natural disasters around that time. And she went and was like part of doing like charity work, like right after, right after doing like presenting the award and stuff. And she was known for, for just continuing charity work and just, yeah. And just like doing a lot of, um, community service up until her, her death in, um, in 2019. Mm. It's like, she just, she just kept it going. She kept the the spirit and the philosophy that her husband made famous. And I, I find it absolutely mind boggling because she was married to this man for eight years. Mm. She experienced this intense trauma of losing her husband and, and being put in a very difficult situation. Mm. And then for the rest of her life, she, creates a legacy of humanitarian work and and just creating a, a positive impact on the world. Mm. Um, so Joe, do you have any thoughts about Veda Clemente's suffering, her unique suffering and, and also her perseverance? You know, when I hear about what she has
2: done, it, it it puts a smile on my face because I think of love, you know, and I mm. think of what love is, In this respect, we see how love always remembers the Beloved, you know, love always remembers the Beloved, and so carries forward the Beloved's dreams and visions and the spirit of the Beloved. and laying down, as it were, a legacy, continuing the legacy of the beloved, right? And and it sounds poetic. <laughs> this is part of what uh, what I'm saying here is, of course, is that love knows no limits; it knows no bounds. Mm-hmm. What is ta- mm-hmm. what is death? Love scoffs mm-hmm. at death, and while precisely through love there is a real suffering, she yet has this capacity as love. To, to continue the work and to allow that work to flourish in new and dynamic ways, even in the absence of the beloved. And so I, mm. I think that's a beautiful thing. Look, eight years of marriage, um, and like all marriages, the highs, the lows, and all of that, and yet mm. she moves forward. Taking her own uh, uh, vows seriously, taking her own memories of her beloved, Ooh seriously and bringing that to others in her works of charity we call it works of charity for a reason and while i can engage in altruistic uh exercises and 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 sort of philanthropic work it becomes real philanthropy right real love Mm. of humanity as well Mm. uh, in other words or real charity real love when it is sustained by a real love Mm. and and so as i think about this you know and i hear these this the story and and of course it brings to mind other stories i i just i'm just amazed by the relationship between love and suffering Mm. um and 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 there's a lot there that can be explored right because the suffering her suffering and i of course i don't know her personally i'm not inside her mind or her heart mm-hmm. but i i can you know based on these things we we can we can assume that and based on our own experience that mm-hmm. her suffering is particularly acute precisely because she loved him right precisely mm-hmm. because she loved him but again what does this mean suffering is suffering by virtue of love right the more the love the greater the potential for suffering and sure sure in one sense absolutely but it doesn't stop there she has a mm-hmm. value system she has her own uh, uh sister, her own principles whatever it may be that mm-hmm. has allowed her to move forward in this mm-hmm. work and maybe as she's doing this she is, of course, in mind, she's probably mindful, I guess, I'm continuing the legacy of my husband. But this is maybe also offering for her some kind of solace, some mm-hmm. kind of, you know, some kind of respite for her mm-hmm. own emotional and psychological uh, affliction. I mean, I may, we may be reading all this a, a bit deeper, uh, maybe too deep, but but there is some interesting dynamics here.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The, the role of suffering and love and and all of that there. You know, I've mm-hmm. had conversations with past students, for example, you know, who will say, you know, Professor Terry, when we were covering up, a, a, you know, a certain topic, maybe like a Soren Kierkegaard's Works of Love, <laughs> mm-hmm. let's say. Yeah. And, and, and he'll say, you know, Professor, ah, this is love, man. I, I'm not, I can't be about that love. You know, I can't be about that mm-hmm. love life, they will say, and and because mm-hmm. they've been burnt and whatever the case is. And, you know, I, I usually remind my students when I can to say, you know, consider the following as a metaphor you know if we say no to love w- what we are effectively doing is yes protecting ourselves from from a higher degree of suffering in one sense in one sense but it's mm-hmm. like it's like saying because uh it, it's 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 like saying how can i put this closing yourself off in a prison It's like, I'm Mm. not going to engage with others. I'm not going to have any interaction, real encounter with others. I'm just going to stay behind these bars, and I am safe from Mm. others. Sure, you're Mm -hmm. safe, but now you're imprisoned. Mm. Love always has the element of risk in it. If it's real love, there's real Mm. risk, and Mm -hmm. that's inescapable. That is inescapable. So um, when we say yes to the beloved whether that's in a romantic and marital context or friend or family, we are saying yes to the possibility of a whole slew of things. And so that is risk because we don't know the future. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So all of this here comes to mind as I, as I listen to this beautiful story and how she continues the legacy and, 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 and what he has done in his own life and how, above all else they maintained their humanity mm-hmm. you know they didn't allow themselves to be owned or 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 co-opted by the forces and the structures that wanted to as it were rob them of their dignity they recognized it mm-hmm. as a lie and maintained their fortitude in the face of oppressiveness of many forms and many under many names and they said no love in the end will win out. And they Mm continued that. And she continues that in the
1: absence of him. And, and it's just such a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny your prison analogy. It sounds a lot like the, the quarantine experience, Hmm. you know, the pandemic and Hmm. and staying at home. And I know it's, it can be a touchy subject for people, but I I feel like it, it has been a common human experience for the world to feel safer inside and away from people yeah. with like with minimal connection. Yeah. And so Joe, just to kind of close uh, one last question I have for you is sure. like, do you have any kind of advice for For someone experiencing suffering, you know, in in its many forms and who is just kind of looking suffering in the face right now, do you have any type of words of encouragement to moving beyond the suffering on, on perseverance and on love? Yeah, go back to
2: Roberto, go back to his wife, go back to Mm. uh, consider people like this who are living out what Nietzsche, in a sense, said. He who lives, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. So think about Mm. ways in which you can use your suffering, use your difficulties as, as a platform to go forward and deeper into the things that you would want easier said than done of course but Mm -hmm. i think this is a a good practical step forward think about Mm -hmm. how you could um just use it (laughs) rather than rather than remaining under its suffering tutelage Mm -hmm. um continue to suffer but suffer well suffer well Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. suffer well and 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 what i mean by that of course is to to rock with it use it and and grow with it and and so you have Mm -hmm. to ask yourself questions like "What? how can i use this what what does this mean in the grand scheme of things um is there a a hidden meaning behind this and all of that there Mm -hmm. good steps forward i think
1: thank you joe this was a great conversation i really enjoyed it it's awesome thank you thank you
2: for filling me in with uh this guy you know great